Hi, James. Ben, how are you? Excited. I'm excited, James. Excited? Pray tell, Ben, why are you excited? I'm excited because we have a new exclusive sponsor for the Exponent Podcast, and it is a company and product that is very personally meaningful to me. Uh, who is who is the company, Ben? <laughs> don't keep us, don't leave us hanging. It is my former employer and uh, the makers of a product that I am a deep believer in, and that is WordPress.com. We're excited to have WordPress.com as a sponsor. Whether you'd like to build a personal blog, a website, or both, creating your website on WordPress.com helps others find you, remember you, and connect with you. You don't need experience. They guide you through the process from start to finish and take care of the technical side to get your site up and running. Their customer support team is made up of WordPress experts eager to help you get the most from your site, and they're available to help 24 hours a day, Monday to Friday, and weekends. Plans start at just $4 a month. And all plans include a custom domain name for the life of the plan. So go to WordPress.com slash exponent. Note that we, we we now have our own own official webpage. So WordPress.com slash exponent to get 15% off your website today. That's WordPress.com slash exponent. And our thanks to WordPress.com for sponsoring Exponent. It is indeed very exciting. And we're very happy to have them on as season sponsors. So thank you guys very much. Again, this is why I, I am genuinely excited to have mm-hmm. them on as sponsors. Not just because I know the folks and and used to work there, but because like it's something that I really do do believe in. Yeah, it's one of those things where you would be shocked at the number of sites on the web that are running on it, but because they don't necessarily brand it, like they're running in the background half the time, unless you're actually building something yourself, you don't even know that they're involved. Yeah, it, it's crazy. Like something like 25% of all the websites in the world run WordPress. Uh, not, not WordPress.com per se, but WordPress.com is also, it's absolutely massive. I mean, I it's one of those, like I've, I've mentioned a few times that uh, in the context of Microsoft to work on something, you know, just to be blown away by scale. Uh, it's mm. the same sort of thing working for, for WordPress.com. I mean, it's not, it's not, Microsoft per se, it's a very sort of different company and product, but they're to work on a web application that's running at scale. And just, like I mentioned, um, one of the cool things uh, about the support team that's on here is everyone, when you start working there, you spend your first few weeks on support. Mm. It, like the whole idea is to, you really what wants to impress on like all employees, no matter what the role is, to, that this is, a, you know, we want to be great for, great for customers and the end user. And even once you're at, once you're at automatic, every year you still do like a, a, a week stint on support just to kind of keep you in that mindset and, and, and remind yourself. I mean, th- there is a dedicated support team. They do most of it, but it, it's kind of an, a, a cool program. But even then, just to get a, an idea of the wide array, just the vast numbers, and then the 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 all of the sorts of people and the different sort of situations that that they encounter and are going through, it really impresses you how big the internet is. It, I mean, mm. it's it's really it, it's it's amazing. And it's also, I mean, that's also pretty cool from a cultural point of view to, to like keep people at the coal faces, uh, start people at the coal faces and then bring them back down for a week every year, I think is a really cool thing for a company to do. Yeah, I agree. I, it, they did a lot of really cool things. I mean, they, they, they also, you know, it's a fully distributed company. So there's no like, there is a central headquarters, but no one, a few people actually work there. Uh. Most people work all over the world. That's when I moved to Taiwan because it had the opportunity to do so. And yeah, the, the whole thing is, is definitely cool. But, but now we're turning into a job ad, which by the way, I, I fully endorse, but, uh, <laughs> but they're definitely getting their money's worth. But uh-huh. the, the, no, the, the ad is for WordPress.com slash exponents. So uh, definitely keep that in mind. Very good. So speaking of of companies, uh, well, WordPress oh, wow. uh, or Automatic, I should say, segue. has not. Yeah, speaking of companies. <laughs> well, this is our second. This is our second go around. And the first time I said speaking of SaaS companies, and I realized I was going to talk about a company that's not a SaaS company. That's part of the uh, problem. Uh, so, uh, so my segue got 
both more accurate and vastly less useful all yes. at the same time. Anyway, sorry. <laughs> so I wrote this week about a company called Stitch Fix, who which actually just IPO'd a couple hours ago, and which is useful because we now actually have some numbers to talk about, which I didn't in the context of my post. I had to use sort of projected numbers. Mm-hmm. But it, it's great. This will actually make what I'm going to say, uh, I think, resonate much more. They're, they're going to start trading in a couple hours about the time this podcast is released, you know, depending when, when, when I finish editing it. And the so just to back so let's back up and get sort of the whole context of what this company is. So this company is a it's an e-commerce company that sells what are called fixes. And the idea is you go there and you give them lots of information about yourself, your preferences around clothing, and they will send you a package of clothing where you can decide what to keep, the stuff you don't want, you can send back at no cost. If you decide to keep everything, you get like a 25% discount. And and you can do this either on a sort of a one-off basis, and whenever you want to fix, you go and get a new fix or you could do it on a sort of subscription basis where you get a regular package you know every month or every every two months or they have different time frames that that they offer and this is a company that has you know really has grown very impressively particularly in their first few years there's a market of mostly like professional women that they've they've reached and a ton of traction through word of mouth and just like their marketing spend over time has been, you know, remarkably limited as a share, as a share of the revenue and just kind of blew up. So now, now they're preparing for their IPO. And the challenge is that that growth is starting to slow and starting to slow pretty significantly. And meanwhile, their marketing spend, the one that was, you know, so low for their first few years is starting to increase. And at the same time, they're also expanding their lines. They're expanding to men's, expanding to maternal, uh, maternity, expanding to, to plus sizes. And, and what I wrote about this week is, you know, this is a company where it's very impressive what they've built to date. But when it comes to sort of an IPO, nearly every sign is going in the wrong direction. Mm. This is, it's interesting for a couple of reasons. At the start of the article, you linked to a TechCrunch article and you bolded a bit. And the, the analysis of a TechCrunch or this TechCrunch analyst was Stitch Fix looks like a company that has actually managed to build a healthy business. And it reminded me a little bit of the conversation we had a few weeks ago about uh, financial people who who uh, work in the financial industry, financial reporters. And if they really understood what was going on, they probably wouldn't be financial reporters. They'd probably be sitting on a beach somewhere drinking cocktails because they've been able to invest so well. The other thing, though, that this, this kind of came to mind is when I see this kind of thing, and based on what you just said about like there are some questions there, is the incentives of managers to IPO and understanding what those are and and you you want to read into those as, as well as look at the underlying uh, value of the business because there are different reasons that managers will decide to take a company public. Obviously, they need capital, but their timing can tell a lot. And if you see something flattening out, or you think it might be about to flatten out, let's get it out to let's get it out to market before that flattening out happens. Because once that happens and you see no more growth or the ability for growth to like looks like it's going to be much more limited, then the amount that the market is going to pay is going to be greatly reduced. 
Yeah, I mean, to, to an extent. I mean, I, I think this idea of sort of timing an IPO, or people complain about like the the when an IPO goes out and it, it skyrockets in the first day. Oh, the banks ripped them off, et cetera, et cetera. And you know, and I, I've written about this previously. If you look at all the incentives, to your point, that go into a pricing decision and mm-hmm. went and went to IPO, there's so much more than like uh, it's inevitable that the vast majority of the time the price jumps up because actually that's where the vast majority of incentives go. It's so there's so much more downside to a, a company going to market and the price going down. It's mm-hmm. debilitating, not just from a foregone money issue, but from a like Facebook, it took them like a year to break out from the cloud of their mm-hmm. IPO mm-hmm. seeming to be priced too high. And actually, I, I've argued, I, I don't know for a fact this is true, but I wrote at the time, uh, Facebook was outbid by Google for Waze, the quote unquote social mapping service. And I think a big reason was Mark Zuckerberg didn't have the confidence of the market to spend a billion dollars at that point. You think mm-hmm. about now, Facebook spending a billion dollars, like no, like he can do whatever he wants. And for good reason, he's proven himself in the eyes of the market. But, you know, if you wonder if Facebook had gone to market and IPO'd at a slightly lower price and had Mm. a normal bump up, I wonder if he almost would have had more flexibility. But the other thing to remember is when you IPO, you're only selling a small portion of your stock. And so that means if the price jumps up, the the company's still benefiting and its executives are still benefiting and, and everyone is still kind of winning. Are the banks arguably winning more than otherwise? They are, but in the, sort of the grand scheme of things, like people make way too much of a big deal about the, the sort of the tactical issue of it. But yeah, to your point, stepping back and looking in sort of big picture, when do you IPO? What's the goal of it? Where are you going? It is a key thing. And you know, no one would want to IPO when all growth is gone. I mean, this yeah. idea that that you don't benefit from growth once you're a public company, of course you benefit from growth. And, and you know, Facebook's employees and Google's employees and Apple's employees and whoever you want to use going back as far as you want, the vast majority of their wealth has been generated as a public company, not, yeah. not as a private company. Totally. I, I think we're saying the same thing. It was that last point that I was trying to really focus on, which is like the timing – of the IPO in relation to the growth trajectory of the company, as opposed to the more tactical stuff of whether to price and what to pop and whatever. And that's that's a much more day-to-day or like what happens in the first day, what happens in the first few weeks, as opposed to like if you're looking at a company and it looked like Stitch Fix and we're going to dive in a little bit and there are questions around whether growth is starting to trail off or whether the cost of growth is starting to get substantially higher, then actually going to market before the market realizes that's what's going on might actually be a wise decision to put numbers behind it mm. stitch fixes growth this year was 34 percent, but the previous year's growth was 113 mm. percent, and the year before that was 368 percent. so i i guess I, I you could argue if they had gone to market a year ago that they would have achieved a higher price and the price is now out so we'll get to it in a moment mm. but at the same time you know my point about that managers and the companies still hold the vast and employees still hold the vast majority of the stock mm. means that if, if the inevitable sort of downturn that would have happened to them would have affected them internally more than would have invest you know impacted investors so you know at the end of the day, it matters far more the quality of the business that you're yeah. building. And you could actually argue that going to market once your real valuation is sort of determined, which is arguably the case of uh, Stitch Fix, as opposed to presenting sort of a facade hmm. that they might have a year ago or that Snapchat arguably yeah. did when they went to market. There's value in almost rationalizing 
what your company is worth before you actually try to sell to people. Yeah, I that is totally fair. I guess the flip side is if you're looking to build a war chest to give yourself a runway to figure out that next period of growth, going a little bit early and selling that big growth story might allow you to raise a little bit more. But I mean, ultimately, it's a it's a long. You're going public. This is a long run play, and uh, playing games around timing. It, and this is your point: playing games around timing isn't ultimately going to change that. It might it might at the margins with things like whether it goes up in the first year or down in the first year or how much capital that you you end up raising. But the more important point is to focus on the, the long run fundamentals of the business. Yeah, and just and I I would just gonna sorry not not to pick on you, but I'm gonna actually put because I think you, your sentiment is a common one. I'm gonna actually push back on it even more. Mm. You're, you're right that you could arguably get a larger war chest to figure this out, but you have so many more mm. problems on the flip side. Where, for example, yep. like in the case of Snap, for example, you have a bunch of employees that are all underwater, yeah, and, and and their 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 options or their stock, whatever it is, is worth less than it was granted to them. And now you have, your golden handcuffs are basically broken because like, what's the point of holding on to your stock if you don't feel like it's gonna re- retain or or return to its previous value anyway. And you have just general morale issues. Like everyone is now has half an eye on that on that stock price every moment of every day in a way that they didn't when you were private. Yep. And I don't know. I just think there's a lesson I'm taking away more and more is you know just don't mess around with this stuff. Like yeah. be, be straightforward and honest about it. And and to the extent you try to game it, and that includes that includes the flip side. Like Facebook, I think, tried to game it and that they were determined they were going to extract every single dollar from the IPO that they could. They were going to let the bank, bankers screw them, as it were. And you know what? Is the system unfair? Do the bankers screw companies? They do. But that's inherent in a system where it's like real estate. The issue is that the bankers are there for every IPO, but the company that feels screwed is only there once. Mm. So the sort of momentum to change it is like a house buyer feels, I can't believe I'm getting charged all this by real estate agents. But at the end of the day, they're buying one house every 10, 20 years, whereas real estate agents are there all the time. So they have motivation to collude or whatever they do to to preserve their sort of their ransom that they charge in places like the US and Canada. And you just have this mismatch. It's sort of inevitable. And at the end of the day, I think it's so easy to get stuck on it when, you yep. know, if you build a good business, everything else is going to take care of itself. I totally agree. I raise it not to be an advocate for it. I raise it just because I can't help but think that this becomes such a momentous event in a company's history and people focus on it so much that this, this inevitable, uh, like they should be focused on the long term exactly for all the reasons you described. And I totally agree with you about Snap, but people become so focused on this, then they start to think about the games inevitably. I agree with your conclusion. Gaming it might work a little bit in the short run, but ultimately what's going to determine whether the company's successful or not is the long run fundamentals, not playing around with when you IPO or the amount you IPO for. It's like the long run fundamentals of the company. Absolutely agree. So what's interesting is I mentioned that numbers are going to come forward. When I wrote this article, it was kind of projected that Stitch Fix was going to raise around two, was going to be worth about $2 billion once this process was over. And it turns out they actually sold fewer shares than they intended to. I believe they, they intend to sell 10 million, they end up selling 8 million, and they sold them at a lower price than they intended to. They were shooting for 18 to $20 a share, and they sold them for about $15 a share, which means the ultimate valuation uh, as they start trading later today is 1.4 billion. Significantly, like that's $600 million less than what they were hoping for. Most people sort of anticipated going into this process. That's, I mean, that's a, that's a pretty, that's a pretty steep drop. Yes, that is a pretty steep drop. I mean, and again, like you don't know whether they were anchoring high 
or whether, and that was always the anticipation or whether it was, this was a nasty surprise, but it, it doesn't, I mean, the way that reads is it, it looks more on the end of a nasty surprise and it might be for the reasons that we're about to talk about. There was a more tactical point I wanted to make this week and then sort of a larger meta point around that. So the tactical point was about like this is actually a very problematic business and understanding the problems that Stitch Fix faces suggests that, you know, this IPO is perhaps going to be less successful than it seems that 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 it might be. And the sort of more meta point is you can be a disappointing IPO or be a company that looks like its growth is in, is increasingly tapped out and still be a big success. And I think that's sort of the paradox that Stitch Fix is. Like, I actually think Stitch Fix, even though we just said all these sort of like, uh, you know, we started hinting at all the problems with it and talked about that their IPO is going off much lower than, than even they anticipated, mm. it's still a big success. And the reason it's a big success is because Stitch Fix has raised $42 million over its lifetime, a relatively speaking, very small amount, which means there has been, you know, again, it's hard to get the exact amount given how much was bought in or whatever, but just 42 million investment in a 1.4 billion IPO, that's a, re- that's a 33 time, 33x return. Like no matter what we say about Stitch Fix in the next few minutes, there is no other conclusion other than the fact this is a very successful startup that and, and they've built something meaningful. I mean, in the same way that I think, uh, like I previously mentioned, people think about this IPO as this momentous thing and everybody focuses on it and then it can become a subject of gaming. There's this crazy attitude inside of Silicon Valley that raising money, raising big rounds at massive valuations is uh, is winning. And to a certain extent, you can make an argument that is a, it is something of a proxy for winning. But for, for like, I don't know, Ben, like the, you start taking huge amounts of VC money. You want to make sure that fundamentally your business is a VCable business that has got a massive VC outcomes. Because once you start juicing up on that money, it is, it is like those guys are looking for a specific kind of outcome. It is a swing for the fences outcome. And the more of it you take, the bigger the outcome needs to be and the bigger that you will be pushed to get there. And it, there are some businesses that lend itself well to that. And we, like, they're obviously the businesses that we talk about regularly, but you can have a healthy, fantastic business that does not need hundreds of millions of dollars of uh, capital invested. And actually you're more likely to have a healthy, successful business if you don't take that money. It's exactly right. So this is a perfect example. What Stitch Fix did is – so Stitch Fix has, has a lot of sort of inherent issues with their model. So the, the, the first issue is when you think about their existing customers, the average spend per customer decreases over time. And that's exactly what you would expect. You expect people to sort of churn – just for churn more than anything, right? People buy it, they try it, and they drop out. And that means the if you look at sort of a cohort basis, the average spend per customer is is going to decrease. And there's also you know any of this sort of product the the, the it's sort of new at the beginning, exciting, mm-hmm. and isn't it cool? And then over time, unless you really fall into a habit of depending on it and buying new clothes all the time, you know, and even being adults, I mean, adults, you just go through clothes less quickly than say kids do, for example, right? I mean, maybe it's districts for be sure they expand to kids. How, how compelling that might be, but but then again, you don't want to spend much on kids because they they just mow through clothes like crazy. Mm-hmm. But but the in general, they have this problem of decreasing spend per customer. So that means they have to always be adding customers. And that these 
these sort of businesses are so difficult to build. If your growth depends on always getting new customers, you're already sort of behind the eight ball. And this is like to go back to you know one of our favorite bugaboos, sort of the Apple and the App Store. One of the big criticisms I've always had about the App Store is that particularly before they enabled sort of services revenue, ongoing revenue, the only way for an app to grow revenue was to continually acquire new customers because upgrades were there weren't paid upgrades and there wasn't any sort of subscription offering. There is now a subscription offering. There's still no paid upgrades. But but the, the big challenge is always getting new customers is really, really hard. It's so much easier to get more revenue from the customers you already have. Yeah. And I mean, there is always the case though. And well, you see on the internet that a, a number of these very innovative fashion models can be quite fickle. There were the, the, the guilt models where they had the flash sales as well. And when they first started, everybody was on them and then people start to tire of it. And the idea that you're going to have a 100% customer retention rate is just, it's, it's not going to happen. People will come on and they'll try it. And the ones that are most likely to try it at the start, are the ones where uh, that they're like the best fit for this type of product or they're like they're they're most mo- most willing to try new things or they have friends who are referring them through word of mouth and inevitably again with fashion like that's just going to start to drop off and it's going to get harder and harder to find those new customers in order to bring on and replace the ones that have dropped out. Yeah, that, that, that's exactly right. And, you know, so Stitchfix, just to back up a little bit, their sort of like claim, what they claim is their sort of differentiation, their sort of defensible advantage is they get all this information about customers and then they build up this sort of like data science engine that, that, that builds a sort of like recommended recommendations for those customers. But then sitting on top of it, they have an actual human sort of curation component. So it's a combination of algorithmically driven and human driven selections. And, and the idea being that you know, you the balance of the two can create a sort of uh, a selection in that fix that increases the likelihood that they're going to keep all the all the items. Obviously, the more items they they keep, the better for margins, uh, and and uh, and also you know the more loyalty you're going to gender. If you if you keep getting a box and it has stuff that you actually like. Then you're, you know, that's going to increase retention. Mm-hmm. It's going to, it's going to reduce churn. And what's interesting is, you know, that model actually does seem to work to an extent. It's hard to know for sure the numbers, but you know, the, their their retention is decent. And and what's interesting is their human component only costs about like four percent of revenue or something. Which, if that is truly a differentiator to have your differentiation aspect, you sort of non-scalable aspect, be four percent of revenue is, is is actually pretty impressive. But again. Just if you back up, if you zoom out, even if relative to the competition, they're doing pretty well in these metrics, just selling stuff in general, it's inherently sort of leaky. Like you're going to be losing customers over time. You're going to have to always be acquiring new ones. And that's just that, 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 that that's hard. It, it's a hard business to build. Uh, yeah, I mean the other the other way of framing it, I guess, is and it's something we've talked about a lot: the power of defaults. And it, it's it's not like a a service like a sell service or a SaaS business where the default is the customer always retains, and you have to screw something up before you lose them. Uh, and maybe you can build a model like this where you start to you get people to opt in, but eventually enough of these boxes start turning up, and they're like, "Hang on, I I don't think I need any more of this stuff," and they opt out, and then. At that point, you've got to find somebody else to replace them. Right. That's that's exactly right. And I think the contrast to SaaS businesses, like I would go even further. So that's a great point about defaults. And and so first off, anyone who's doing a on-demand 
stitch or on-demand fix, I should say, they're already very problematic, right? Because they have to actually initiate a new order. And obviously, it's better to transfer people to the subscription service. But to your point, there's something very concrete about getting a box and being forced into making decisions, do I want to keep this Mm. stuff or not, where it it, it just kind of, it's a constant reminder that you are being, you know, that that you are being charged for this. And that's why, for example, one thing that's interesting is, so I mean, Shashakri, I send an invoice every time I charge someone. So if you have a monthly subscription, I send you an invoice every month. Turns out that is not the normal sort of way for publications to behave. Go look. When was the last time the New York Times sent you a reminder that you had been charged or whatever or the Wall Street Journal or whatever sort of one you subscribe to? It turns out none of them do. I always notice every year when I'm doing my taxes and collecting all my expenses and receipts and stuff like that. Boy, it's kind of funny. I don't have a single receipt for any of these guys. You have to Mm -hmm. go online and click into it and download it. Why? Because the reminder that you're paying is a prompt to unsubscribe. And so they just they just remove the prompt completely. Mm, I mean, I, I, there's some nefarious business person out there that's obviously figured this out. The question is, given how, uh, how smart an analyst you are, uh, we'll, we'll wait and see how long it takes before your invoices start disappearing for, to Stratechery subscribers. <laughs> no, uh, no, I, no I, 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 I'm keeping them. And I, and, I'm, and I'm I also send you. out a... No, not only that, but I also send before annual subscriptions uh, end, I send a reminder saying in a week you're going to be charged. Like I don't want to have to get the like send back, say, oh, can you refund or or all those sort of things. And, and you know, the reason is – and this gets into I think the nature of subscriptions. Mm. You know, if you're the New York Times Wall Street Journal, like you already have – your reputation is already built. You know like that that's – people are subscribing based on that. And this sort of fundamental mind shift that I believe has to go into publishing is to get – break out of the mindset of paying for something that's already been produced and you pay with attention and your eyeballs or you pay for a newspaper with, through circulation numbers or people that would, oh, we should do micropayments. No, it's never going to work. Mm. The, the only way this model is sustainable is if you people are paying for the ongoing production. Mm-hmm. And that sounds like a very slight differentiation, but it's a critical one. People are paying for content they have not yet received. Yeah. And, and, and so in and on what basis will they make that investment? Well, on the basis of the New York Times, they know about the New York Times. It has a reputation. They believe in what they're doing, so they pay, and then they get the content over time. In the case of someone like me, yes, I'd like to think my reputation is improving over time, and more and more people know about Shachekri, but still, you're being asked to give $10 a month to some random guy on the internet who lives in Taiwan – I think it behooves me and I gain great benefit, whatever increased churn I have from reminding people. And make no mistake, there is a direct connection to when I send out those when I send out those invoices, I immediately get a wave of people discontinuing their account. I mean, not a wave. My churn's super low, like 1%. But, but th- th- that is when people discontinue their accounts is when I send those in- invoices. But on the flip side, to be perceived and be very clear that I'm an honest operator and straightforward, like maybe – I don't know. Like I just think that that has to be so inherent to the business model because you are asking people to invest in you. And – and you achieve their trust and willingness to give you money by defaulting to being more open and more straightforward than not. I don't have the New York Times reputation to fall back on where I can play games with my invoices. Yeah, totally. But there's also something else that you described, and it's something that I think people naturally underestimate, which is the power of the narrative and the positioning and this idea that you're paying for something that hasn't been created yet. And you're actually reminding people that they're paying for something that they haven't, that hasn't been created yet. And you're supporting someone to go do this as opposed to getting a back issue or paying for yesterday's edition. Like, I I think that is also super powerful. Yeah, and I don't know, like it's it's this, it's this very sort of subtle shift, but I think understanding and adopting this shift is 
is really, particularly for publishers, is so critical to thinking about your business going forward. You're investing, you are investing in the machinery such that people will invest in you. Like you need to view your subscribers not as customers, but as investors, people who are putting in the money so you mm. can do what you do. Mm. And I just think that subtly changes the way you view so many different aspects of yeah. your business in a way that's so much more sustainable and leads towards better decision-making in the long run. See, it's funny. I was framing that as a narrative that was only focused on your subscribers, but it sounds like the narrative applies just as much to the way you approach the business as well. Absolutely, one hundred, one hundred percent. It's part and parcel. It's part and parcel with it. And you know, it's funny. I've been thinking a lot about you know. I think about this all the time. But you know, in terms of like day to day work and 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 what I do, you know, there's something so you know fulfilling about. You know, I talking to someone about like, um, would I ever have like advertising in the new, in the like the freeze new, new uh, newsletter, for example? And like, I'm not on principle opposed to it. I mean, there's an extent where, you know, it's a free product that's going out and I could probably, you know, tack on some extra money. You know, so I'm, I would never say never. But what I was talking to this person about is what's so great about my business today is all that matters is, Am I making my current subscribers happy and satisfied with what they receive? And like none of the other stuff matters. If I don't send something to, to the free news list, it doesn't matter. All that matters is making the people that have already – is paying them back. They've paid me in advance to mm. give them great content, and all that should matter for me is – feeling that I've paid up my debt. And mm-hmm. and if I do that, everything else takes care of itself. And you know that's a it's a it's a it's a good place to be for, as far as, you know, running a business. On the subject of a good place to be of running a business though, we were on Stitch Fix and we managed to take <laughs> a little bit of a left turn. <laughs> Yeah, sorry, Stitch Fix. Uh, so, uh, yeah, this, Stitch Fix has a few problems. So, one, so what's funny? Oh, what's funny is uh, this is actually a problem I share with Stitch Fix is my uh, I have a leaky model in that the only upsell I have is to get less money from people, which is if you subscribe monthly, I earn one hundred twenty dollars from you a year, and if you subscribe annually, I only earn one hundred dollars from from, mm. from you for a year. If you include credit card fees, the difference is actually closer to fifteen dollars as opposed to twenty dollars. But it's funny, like a great SaaS business, like another company that IPO this week is SendGrid, which does email, uh, like transactional email. So whenever your you know Uber sends you an email, you know based on you change your password or whatever it might be. Mm-hmm. Uh, they use SendGrid, for example. And what's great about that business, and wh- what I love about SaaS businesses in general, and the reason you know SaaS businesses are are it's really just sort of like technology and computing at its best and bring the internet to bear in a really positive way. What's great about SendGrid is you sign up with SendGrid and you get like a hundred emails a day for free, which which sounds really small until you think about building an app, right? Or building a new service. And all you want is like 10 customers, right? Mm-hmm. Just, just like get it off the ground, see if it works. And the idea that you can have a service like this and and, and, and you can get everything working and going, and then you only pay them when and if you yourself are growing. So there's this amazing alignment that comes with they benefit when you benefit. And in the long run, when you get really big, and you know, I talk about this in the I did the same thing with MailChimp, where MailChimp starts out with 2,000 customers for free or 12,000 emails a month. And like, you know, if I could ever in a million years send 12,000 emails a month, like that would be amazing, right? Mm-hmm. That like how well would I be doing? Turns out now I send hundreds of thousands of emails a month, right? And and I pay MailChimp a whole bunch of money, but do I feel bad about paying them money? Of course not because I, the amount they charged me increased in line with the growth of my business and we all feel great about that. And and 
that alignment is one of the absolute my absolute favorite things about SaaS companies. And, and because the internet's lack of transaction costs, there's no salesperson in the middle. There's none of this infrastructure mm-hmm. that's sort of like fixed costs that that, that has involved a relationship. The the relationship because their investment is entirely in fixed costs. Their relationship mm-hmm. with me can be completely transactional. Can, can yeah. be completely on a marginal basis, and that's great. It's such a win win for all sides. It's so cool the way that so much of this stuff has been operationalized and it's uh, like the expense has gone from big upfront capital expenses to operational expenses. And assuming that they're relatively equivalent in total cost, you would always take the operational expense that maps uh, as opposed to like the big fixed costs. And we talked about earlier in this episode on the App Store how previously there wasn't a subscription model and how that skewed the incentives. And it's cool to see that Apple started to adjust that to uh, to allow for that alignment of incentives. But it's it's everything from AWS and the server farms. Like if, if you had to be big enough to afford that server farm or you'd have to go out and raise the capital to put the server farm in in the first instance, like that limited the number of people that can do it. But because it's operational, because it can start with these tiny little effectively, I mean, in in many instances, free to get off the ground and then you grow with the business, it allows these things to take root and so many more of these startups to exist that otherwise wouldn't. But it's not just in the startup world. It's even like transportation as a service. Like it, it feels like we've been too long since I raised Uber and it's exactly the same thing. Like you can get around a city now without having to make the upfront investment in a uh, many thousands of dollar vehicle. You just load an app and you just pay on a per trip basis. It's fantastic. I mean, it's not just, again, it's not just startups, not just sort of individuals. I mean, the, the real benefit is, is, you know, all, all, a huge number of these businesses are, are B2B businesses where you can build a, a new company. That company doesn't have to be a Silicon Valley style startup. It can be a one person business like Trajectory mm. or it can be a small mom and pop shop or whatever it might be. And this, totally. this idea where you're not making big upfront costs, it allows for so much more iteration and experimentation just building a business, right? If you, if you need $500,000 to build a business, that barrier is so high that so many ideas won't even be tried. Mm. The ideas that will be tried are going to be inherently more conservative because they more need to work. And if it doesn't work, you're in big trouble, right? Whereas if your startup costs are in the case of internet businesses, they're quite literally free. Like you could go to wordpress.com slash exponent and set up a site. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but I mean but mm-hmm. but I mean, this is the idea of what's so attractive about it is you can set all this sort of stuff up for basically free or for minimal dollars a month. I think when I started Chatechery, I, I my my monthly costs were definitely less than hundred dollars a month. Like I, I don't remember all whatever whatever I paid for, but it was you know it, it was minimal. And you know what? If it didn't work out, no big deal. And if it did work out, it, it, or you got some inkling, you could pivot easily, you can shift easily, you can try new things, figure it out. That is so critical and valuable and you know we talk about in the context of facebook like facebook being such a great ad service for small and medium-sized businesses Mm -hmm. that's just one aspect of running a business but it's it's emblematic of all these other parts it is so much easier to build any sort of business and, and that sort can be so much broader because the ability to experiment and iterate and and find those niches that exist out there on the internet is so much greater th- th- than ever before and and it goes back to this this how the the companies on the internet can 
invest massively in fixed costs, all in fixed costs, all in fixed costs. We talk about the context of advertising like Facebook and Google and they monetize their advertising, but the SaaS companies are the same thing. They're just a different monetization model. They're, they're spending all their money on fixed costs, on, on building the service and all improvements to the service apply to everyone on that service equally. And, and, and so the peop- then people walk up and they actually expend zero fixed costs. They, they, they spend purely marginal costs. And it's, I can't overestimate what a massive, how much better this is than it was ever ever previously, particularly if you want to build something new. Yeah, I mean, it's it's also funny, which is like one of the one of the things that's typically viewed in Silicon Valley is B two C is the sexy stuff, and B two B is is the boring, unsexy stuff. But I feel like through that frame, you're like this is a very powerful way of saying that some of the most impactful technology that's actually being built is this infrastructure layer that's B2B that involves these large fixed costs where these companies build this product and allow for people to leverage them all around the world, people just like you, to start these businesses and allow for these businesses to be built that otherwise would not be able to be built. And it's like, it's one of the most exciting stories in tech. And it's, yeah, you're right. A lot of it is happening in in the B2B world. Oh, it's it, well, it almost it almost all is. I mean, so it's all right. We need to get back to Stitch Fix. I yes. mean, the yes. the problem with the the problem with consumers, the problem with with you know all all these benefits derive from the things we've talked so much about. The fact that there are zero transactional costs, which means these B two B businesses can bring on you know it, it, it not really infinite, but effectively relative to the old world, like an infinite number of customers. Because you like you want to sign up for Slack, you just walk up to the Slack website and you sign up. You want to sign up for SendGrid, just go to the website and sign up. Like it, it, it's it's this totally frictionless sign up model where they don't they don't need big sales forces. They don't need big sales forces because one, the transaction can be seamless, but two, they don't need to juice growth that much because the growth comes all internally because when you sign up and you're small and your your expenditure increases over time and you see this in the, you saw the case with SendGrid where their initial customers from like four years ago are spending like four times as much today as they were then why because the entire model is about growing with a business when your customers make more money you make more money and if you are a great product that helps customers make more money then you will make more money like the, the incentives are so powerfully aligned you know, with this sort of model, but that depends on there being those sort of no transaction costs. The fact that you can grow without having to invest hugely. I mean, does SendGrid have to buy new servers and add capacity as they get more customers? Of course they do. But if a personal example, does Mailchimp have to add on more servers if they if they start sending like five billion more emails a day? Of course they do. But if I Ben Thompson increase my my mailing list by a thousand subscribers, does that burden Mailchimp in any way whatsoever? Of course not. It doesn't cost them. It doesn't really cost them anything. But they now get to charge me more, and yeah. I'm happy to pay more because I'm earning more money. And I mean, the the interesting part about this is thinking about the cohorts in one group versus another group. Whereas in the consumer cohort, the 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 average spend is pretty much the same, and it probably stays pretty similar. But you have a whole lot of churn. You you still have churn in the in the B two B world as well. Like a lot of these companies end up failing, but it's it's almost like the VC model in that the ones that succeed grow so much and end up using so much of your services that it it far outweighs the uh, the, the the rate of churn. So you think about like Uber using SendGrid or whoever might be 
using SendGrid. Like these all are little uh, infantile companies starting out and they're all probably starting on the free plan and a bunch of them drop off as they fail. They run out of funding. They can't find product market fit. But a few of these things hit and then they end up sending extraordinary volumes of email and that causes the cohort to grow and be more profitable over time. Whereas you think about the same for a company like Stitch Fix. It's not like someone ends up uh, winning the lottery and all of a sudden buying hundreds of thousands of fixes. Right, you can only wear so many clothes. Yeah, in, right. So many pairs of clothes in a year. Yeah. Clothes, clothes. <laughs> I talk. I've been dealing with that for only 132 episodes. <laughs> Sorry. It's like a feedback loop of this sort of infinite expandability, right? Mm. And so if you can plug into another company's yeah, you're right. It is it is the venture capital model. It's basically the venture capital model operationalized and made into a business. And I wrote this a few years ago in the context of AWS where, you know, mm, AWS exactly. is like a venture capitalist because uh, everyone signs up with them and if any of them hit, then AWS is along for the ride. And but but that's <laughs> it's not just AWS. It's all these sorts of companies have that exact sort of model. And what ends up happening to the ones that succeed at like Sengrid did or you know other ones before it is they get negative churn. And by negative churn, it means that if you take the revenue that drops off, but then you add on the increased revenue by the people that are already there. And, and this is how you evaluate you know SaaS companies. You look at a cohort level, like look at the year 2012, for example, and what is their net revenue over time. And successful SaaS companies will have a negative churn in that their revenue per cohort is increasing over time, even though customers are falling off because the customers that stay are increasing their spend on a regular basis. I mean, it's a fantastic model. Yeah, the the Amazon thing is the perfect example because they capture so many, but you can start to think about it. I mean, when you frame it like that, it's super interesting. Like you get one of these B2B companies to be super successful and something that everyone relies on, and it becomes like a little venture capital business, which is crazy to think about. And this is why I hammered, this is why Ergerson Theory, everyone's like, oh, isn't that just double-sided markets. Isn't that just XYZ, ABC? And it is all those things, but it's why I always hammer on the key component of these markets is the zero transactional cost and the zero the, the zero cost nature of the internet because that's what makes this all possible. It's what makes this mm. ability sort of scale. You have this infinite scaling ability in a way that you never, you just don't have with physical products. And again, Stitch Fix is the perfect example. You can only sell so mm. many fixes yeah. to one customer whereas you can send in basically infinite number of emails for for Uber and just the, the the underlying nature of the business when you're dealing with physical goods versus when you're dealing with these virtual goods it just it's just fundamentally different you, you can't overemphasize how different it is so yeah <laughs> b2b sexy folks b2b sexy b2c can be as well i just think you know in general the, the well no but the the well, think about it. The sexiest companies in the world from a financial perspective are like Google and Facebook, right? Because right. they are totally virtual. They're not dealing with physical goods. And this, again, makes what Apple has done and continues to do such a marvel because they are doing this with physical goods. Right. That's what makes it truly extraordinary what they've done and built and more extraordinary in a way than, than Google and Facebook are because Google and Facebook are taking advantage of the fundamental you know, economics of the internet, whereas, whereas Apple is still has to actually ship phones, right? Mm. People have to keep buying phones. And that's why the Apple basically to have negative churn for all intents and purposes because they are adding on AirPods and they're adding mm. on a watch and they're increasing on increasing the price of the phone and they're having the services revenue through the app store and things like that. It's truly extraordinary. It's easy to fall into the, you know, just, oh, Apple, yeah, Apple's blowing it out again and again. But when you actually think through the economics that they are doing 
they are growing like an internet company with physical products. As much praise as Apple gets, it's, it's probably not appreciated enough. Whereas it's easy to just ship bits in the sense that you get what you need between the customer and it's done. Well, you get built-in scalability. When you ship bits, right. the scalability is inherent in that. But you try and you try and get to the point where you're shipping all those phones all around the world and building all those phones and trying to predict demand for all. It's not like a, a server. And servers, like they don't scale up perfectly, but they scale up pretty easily compared to manufacturing a phone months before it needs to be delivered and then shipping it all around the world and being responsible for all those distribution channels like it is a gargantuan task well but but again it's not just that like you can use google more and more advertisers come into google and they're going to make more money like there's just a scalability aspect whereas once you have an iphone you're not going to buy another iphone right or and when you buy another iphone it's going to be two years down the road and oh the iphone's really good man it's gonna be three years down the road and you have there's just so much more of an inherent limitation to physical products mm-hmm. in a way there aren't to to virtual ones for all intents and purposes constantly growing and if you look at facebook their price per ad keeps going up keeps going up keeps going up that means that like one i could be using facebook more but even if i'm not using facebook more facebook is making more money on me because their price per ad is going up and, and there's so many again the scalability is built in a way it's not with with physical products and in any company b2b or b2c that is dealing with physical products has this sort of inherent cap on what they can do you know that's why apple has i've always been clear apple is not does not fit under aggregation theory because their results do which is remarkable but the, and and their customer focus is certainly a model for how this works mm. but the inherent limitations imposed by having to ship physical products means they're the you know the exception that proves the rule as it were yeah i mean this is this reaches back to something that i mean it it touches on the causal mechanism for something that we haven't talked about for some time which is you start to try and understand the economics more broadly of what's going on and how tech is like tech is impacting the economy and you think about how we we're shifting from an economy that has always been pushing around physical goods like what you just described and apple might be the penultimate example of a company that that has done this and will ever do this successfully and we're starting to move into a lot more value being created digitally and because of that and because of the zero marginal cost there's this massive deflationary effect and it's starting to flow through into all aspects of the economy in ways that we just haven't seen before Yes, uh, I do have to correct you though. It's ultimate, not penultimate. Penultimate oh, is second sorry. is second to first. Oh yes, my bad. Ultimate, yes. <laughs> no, no worries. I, I I just want to spare us of the tweets and emails. Anyhow, I got to get back to Cisfix. We, we are actually running out of time. We're still on Cisfix. Yeah, so I, again, know. I keep. Sorry, no, it's. It, I, I think. I, no, I think it's fine. I think it's. I think it's interesting. So we have this aspect of, of just physical goods being problematic. You're going to reduce. They have a few other challenges too, and, and this is one that I, I really wanted to sort of emphasize is this aspect of Cisfix benefited from this huge word of mouth and they spread like really rapidly and grew very quickly. The the problem that you run into with these products is that the people that value what you offer the most are likely going to be the first to hear about it, right? So, I mean, I think about this with Shrekery. The people who are probably most interested in what I have to say have probably already heard about Shrekery, right? So so when I think about what's the long-term growth prospects. Now, I, I still think I have a larger market to go because I think lots of people in all kinds of industries should be reading Shrekery. And, and yes, certain sure, sure, sure tech you can, but if you don't work in tech, you're still impacted by tech and you need to understand this stuff. If anything, you arguably need it more than anyone else, like, you know, not to sound immodest or anything. But the, the fact remains that the sort of 
easiest fruit, the lowest fruit on the tree, is by definition going to be picked first. And that means that in the, a mistake you see companies make again and again and again, I think you saw this with Blue Apron sort of earlier this year, the people who want to like get little meal boxes shipped to them and make it at home, that is a limited market. And the problem is if you build your sort of financial expectations on how much it costs to reach those people, you're going to be wrong because the further away you get from your target customer, the less marginal value they get from your service, mm. which means the more you have to either increase the value that you offer, one, lower your price, two, or three, spend a lot of advertising dollars to convince them to give it a try. And that's particularly problematic because one, it's really expensive. And two, they're going to churn more often because they just get less value from your service. And unless you think about your marginal customer instead of your core customer, if you think about your core customer too much, you will totally mess up your sort of growth forecasts mm. because your marginal customer is getting a very different level of value from your service than your core customer is. Yeah, it's probably worth explicitly stating the the like the the LTV, the lifetime value of a customer, which is which is the the equation is pretty simple, but it's helpful to have it all all spelled out because you can then uh, you can then go through each of the com the components, which is the revenue you generate minus the cost to serve divided by the cost of capital. And then you've got to take out your customer acquisition costs, which is like the marketing. And the thing where I think a lot of these companies think, I, I mean, they, they don't focus on that customer acquisition cost going up. But the thing that I think a lot of people focus on is how economies of scale are going to make life so much easier. And you think about, you think about meal preparation. It's like, oh, but once we have a whole bunch of people in a delivery area, we can start. It's going to be so much more efficient for our shippers. They'll just drop it off or we'll have much, much better operations. Like because we, we get, we get scale in terms of purchasing all the goods and it's easiest, easier for us to put these things together but oftentimes like that customer acquisition cost and the churn that's what that those things have to rise much faster than any economies of scale and it starts to screw with the economics entirely that's exactly right because because you have to understand do those economies of scale actually impact the value i can provide to my customer so mm. and, and where you have to you have to have some mechanism to scale your customer acquisition costs in a positive way so use netflix as an example because i think netflix is one that's really easy to sort of understand. What's brilliant about Netflix is the people who are into streaming and the idea of streaming have been signed up to Netflix for years, right? I mean, the, the, it's not like Netflix is an unknown thing. So, you're, so how does Netflix get new customers? Well, a, bi a big part of it is because as they they generate more revenue, cre create more money, they're able to use that to create new shows in different genres that appeal to different people. And then those shows become hits and people love political dramas or whatever it might be, or comedy shows, and they can't get it unless they subscribe to Netflix. And then you get this flywheel effect of more people and they get more data and like explaining what the people what people want to watch or what they like watching it gives them more insight and more money to greenlight more shows and you build this juggernaut that way as it as it gathers momentum that's that's exactly right and so what happens is Netflix didn't have to remember the options right could they increase marketing 
Well, they could, but although Netflix's marketing has been, you know, relatively steady state as a percentage of revenue, could they lower lower the price? Well, the problem with lowering the price is you already have this core group of customers, and you don't want to like decrease your revenue take from them, right? So lowering prices as a means to attract new customers is very problematic for a sort of ongoing ongoing for a subscription sort of business. So that leads three: you increase the value to your marginal customers, and every new show on Netflix, and this is why Netflix focuses on evergreen content that you can watch. You can go back and watch. You know, Orange. I've used this example before, but you can watch Orange Is the New Black today, and it will still be relevant in a way that, say, sports would not be, or or, or a, mm. a public affairs show would, would not be. And so, what happens is, if I sign up for Netflix today, the value to me is much larger than it was a year ago or two years ago. And you add on another important point, which is adding genres, adding new languages, adding new sorts of things, such that the value for the incoming marginal customer is continually going up. And so, you can manage. It, even though it costs more to to get that new customer, you want to have a scalable way to sort of manage that cost. And you know, take Uber as a, or you talked about before as another example, or, or car sharing services, or Airbnb, or whatever it was. The people who signed up for Uber first in San Francisco really had had the pain and they had the need for it and they paid a very high price. Remember, Uber started being all black cars. But what happens is they come on, you get more drivers, which means you get more liquidity, which means the value of the service has now increased without Uber spending anything. They didn't have to spend on advertising, right? And so more people come on, more people come on, and you get more drivers coming on. And you get this virtuous cycle where the value of the service is increasing Without Uber having to spend money on it, and that attracts more people, which which triggers the cycle going in circles, and it's that cycle that that defines aggregators, and it's that cycle that defines the sort of company that should take hundreds of millions of dollars in, in, in VC. Why? Because there is a flywheel going on that mm-hmm. is keeping customer acquisition costs manageable, and if anything, decreasing over time because the value is increasing even faster than the sort of hesitancy of the marginal customer, if that makes sense. Right. And there's one other very important reason to take VC in such an instance is whoever ends up out in front has a really big advantage because it becomes really hard to come to come along from behind when someone's already the benefit beneficiary yep. of one of those flywheel effects and for them to catch up. And we might have seen it, like we've talked about Uber snatching uh, defeat from the jaws of victory and allowing Lyft to to, to catch up, but it's actually pretty rare in, in, with very few exceptions. Once a company gets out in front and is the beneficiary of this, they, they it, it, it's like a land grab. And once they get that territory, it's very hard to lose. Right, exactly. And so this kind of gets to the broader takeaway and why I view Stitch Fix as as a successful company in a way that's a blue apron to use the, the similar example, dealing with physical products. All those, I peeled earlier this year. I don't. I view it as a failure. I wrote it when their S1 came out and, and it's certainly the market has borne that out. And and the reason is that Stitch Fix, very early on, whether intentionally or not, I, I, I would imagine intentionally, it's been a very well-managed company from, from the get-go, they mm. recognized the nature of their business such that they were not an aggregator, they needed to keep costs under control, they needed to be profitable earlier rather than later, they didn't have this sort of inherent feedback loop that would make their, their product more valuable than not, and so they've been either profitable or very close to profitable for the last 40 years. They only raised $42 million, as I noted. And now they're IPOing for a quote-unquote disappointing $1.4 billion, which is still a massive return for everyone involved. And they're going to go on the market, and they're going to go up and down, and it's going to be a normal company. And they are a totally functional, normal company. And you had someone like Blue Apron, on the other hand, that raised $200 million. 
was massively unprofitable, and their their unprofitability was increasing over time because as they were breaking out of their sort of core customer, they're having to spend more and more on marketing. And this is a company that's in much greater trouble. Why? Because they didn't have the discipline or awareness to recognize the nature of their company. Should they have taken VC? Mm. Sure. There's nothing wrong with taking VC to get started. But there is there is a further delineation, which is these sort of aggregator companies that have sustainable advantages that come with scale in customer acquisition costs, not just in the production of, of items, but in customer acquisition and churn. Versus other ones that are just – they're perfectly good businesses. And you know what? I think Stitch Fix is a fantastic success and ought to be a model for everyone, not just in spite of the disappointing IPO, but because of the disappointing IPO. Can you have yeah. a disappointing IPO and still be a massive success as a business? If so, that's a well-managed business, and I say kudos to, 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 to Stitch Fix. I think it's a great point. And again, it's it's so easy for folks to pattern match off the 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 very high level stuff like raising lots of money and big valuations and whatever and assuming if they do the same they're going to be successful and I think the the lesson here is understand the fundamentals of what it is you're doing and recognize that what's right for you or what's right for somebody else might not be the same thing and if you stick rocket fuel into a vehicle that's not designed to take it you're going to end up like it might yeah, it's going to be, it's going to feel fantastic. And TechCrunch is going to write about how you've raised all this money and how you're doing great. But you're, you're setting yourself on a course for disaster and you want to be thoughtful about whether yours is the type of business that should be taking something like this. Because if it's not doing that is, is, is just setting you on a path to disaster. Yeah. And I think, you know, just to sort of build on your point, it's so easy to, we write about these big, aggregator type companies for a reason because the nature of this aggregation effect is that they're going to touch so many people they're going to have such mm-hmm. a big impact and there's so many they're like the the antitrust concerns that are inherent yeah. with it this is part of this is part and parcel with the idea if you are a company that might have antitrust issues in the long run by virtue that means you have this sort of business model that lends itself to dominating mm-hmm. the sort of market are we going to ever be worried about antitrust and sish fix no of Probably course not, not right i mean but, but you know what we, to your point, it's you know it's easy to talk about old oh, lifestyle businesses like Shatekery versus you know VC businesses. But I think it's it's useful and important to within VC businesses itself to delineate between building a perfectly fine, good quality business that you know stays in your lane, is profitable from the beginning, thinks about you know what you're going to be, and other ones. On the flip side, that should be spending crazy amounts of money. Like it, they ought to be taking out all this money and going for it because the potential outcome is so massive. And but the thing is, you have to understand very early on which which bucket you fall mm-hmm. into. Because if you are a normal quote unquote normal business and you start raising money and hiring as if you're the other sort of business, you are basically at best you will sort of limp to a public offering and then just be brutalized in the market. It, most of the time, you're not going to even make it that far. Yeah. And I mean, like you think about the outcomes for the people that invest, whether through their money or their, their time and sweat and tears, like the outcomes, if you, it, it looks like everything's going great. If you have, if you, uh, if you raise one of these monster rounds, but if you don't have one of the fundament, the businesses that fundamentally support it, like nobody's going to do very well out of it. It's going to, it's going to turn into like the splitting up of d- dividing a pie that everyone thought was going to be much bigger. Whereas, 
again, you you compare the outcome for Stitch Fix and people are saying it's disappointing based on absolute terms. But everyone involved in that organization, assuming it's all been like, and I don't know the details of what's on the cap table and whatever, but like just in general, you would assume that everyone will do very well as a result of it being well managed. Like it's a good outcome for everyone involved. And that's what that's what we should be aspiring to more of. Right, and we'll see, and we'll see what this fix ultimately trades at. But, but again, your your point is well made. I mean, just to use again, use Blue Apron as an example, they're down to like five hundred eighty five million in market cap, and you remember that they took on two hundred million in in VC. Like that, that's a mismatch, right? There is, um, and again, that's not a perfect sort of comparison because you have to go back to who sold and when, when they came on, all sorts of things. But you can just look at you know for a similar. A similar situation for Sysfix, a 3x their VC investment would be a $120 million company, which means coming down $1.2 billion from where they're at today. And, and mm. if they pawned that much in a year, like that would certainly, that would certainly be a problem. It's hard to see that happening in part mm. because they're, again, they're a, a break even company right now and, and they're, they could become profitable in a way that, you know, a company like Blueprint could not. Anyhow, I know we've kind of been all over the place <laughs> on this episode, but I think there's, it's so easy to, look at stuff always look at it with the same lens right but if you look at stuff with the same lens and and particularly if you're building a company you just look at you know what's out there in the news it's really easy to make really fundamental mistakes very early on in your company that that doom you without you even realizing that you're dooming yourself and that's why like I wanted to write about Sysfix. like yes I can write about this company actually has a fair bit of problems if you think about sort of growth prospects going forward, but that you could be in that situation yet still be a success is is something that is very much worth emulating, and I hope more companies do. Yeah, and I mean, we naturally have a bias towards talking about those big companies that are having the the uh, the impact on society, which is like the basis of the podcast. But at the same time, uh, there are only there is only going to be space for so many of those, and you start to think about what needs to spring up for everyone else to get involved in in the economy and growing things. And it 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 starts to need to look like a model, like what what we're seeing. Like there is there is a lot of space for companies like this, and if they're well managed, then everyone can do really well when they get involved in. Them. Yeah, because I got a bunch of responses to Charles saying. Oh, why are we praising Stitch Fix? I mean, you look at Blue Apron. I'm like, no, that was my point, right? Like, I can, I, you can simultaneously highlight the challenges uh, in this model. It, it, it's about growth. The the idea of valuing this company is about understanding their growth prospects, not their like yesterday's profitability per se. But the when profitability matters is if growth is uncertain then you better be profitable, right? Mm. The only way you can get away with not being profitable is if you your runway for growth is just unbelievably massive. And and that's something that Blueprint did not understand and something that SysFix does. And that recognition is what I was praising, not saying that this is you know going to be a $10 billion company because it quite obviously isn't. And you know what? That's okay. Yep, exactly. All right, our thanks to WordPress.com for sponsoring Exponent. Again, if you want to sign up for a, a site, and you should, it's WordPress.com slash Exponent. We'll let them know you came from us, and I will talk to you. I will not talk to you next week. Next week is Thanksgiving. Right. So happy Thanksgiving to our listeners in the U.S., and happy week off from our blathering to everyone else in the world, and I will talk to you in a few weeks. Sounds good, mate. Have a good one. All right, I'll talk to you later. Bye. Bye-bye.